Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie, it's you, Jamie. Don't be alarmed, but I think there's a guy following you. Maybe we should get that guard dog we talked about? Nothing too scary, maybe like a Bichon with an attitude? You know, Progressive's collision insurance covers injured dogs and cats at no extra cost, so... Wait, the guy stood up when I stood up. He's on the phone. He's looking right at me. Oh, wait, it's just my reflection. Don't tell anyone about this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet coverage not available in New Hampshire and North Carolina. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, creator of the Locked On Podcast Network, and radio voice for you, Utah Jazz. Thanks so much for tuning in to Locked On NBA. Today's guest is John Schumann. NBA.com writer, stats guy a little bit, so there'll be some geeky element to it. What's real? What's not real so far? What's the future? What do all the new numbers mean on NBA.com? We will dig into all of those things uh, for you today. Hope you uh, are looking forward to the broadcast and you really enjoy it. John's done great work, so there'll be some interesting aspects uh, from John Schumann of NBA.com. Today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the number one app to use to buy tickets to any upcoming NBA game or other event you want to go to. And with the promo code LOCKED, you can get yourself a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So here's what you do. Go download the SeatGeek app right now, and then on the settings tab, act a promo code, put in LOCKED. Why SeatGeek? One, because they pull tickets from all the other sites into one place so you never miss a deal. You don't have to worry about going to multiple places. Two, they give you the ticket grade on every ticket in the arena so you know whether you're getting a good price on something. If it's a big green circle, that's a good one for you, and all ticket purchases are guaranteed so you don't have to worry about any, you know, garbage that's out there go to SeatGeek download the app on your phone get the free SeatGeek app enter the promo code in locked right away when you use it for the first time you'll get $20 sent back to you and once you've used SeatGeek once I promise it becomes a regular for you it is simply that easy the best place first place I go to tickets to a game a concert or anything I'm going to do so get the SeatGeek app on your phone you will really like it and one last thing before we welcome John in and get the show going. Locked on NBA is part of the Locked on Podcast Network. That means your favorite team has a daily podcast every single day. Locked on, whoever your favorite team is. Go subscribe on iTunes or Android, whatever it is. Catch it on Audio Boom. However it is you want to catch your podcast will be there for you every single day. Expert analysis, 15 to 25 minutes giving you the insight and knowledge on your team or any team in the NBA you care about, all part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Now let's get the show rolling with NBA.com's John Schumann. So, John, the question has to be, when is any of this real? You know, right now I just finished prepping for Jazz Mavericks, and I still have on my little one sheet that I have in front of me all of last year's numbers. When do we when do we start to say, oh, this this is actually real? I think that the the twenty game mark is the safest spot um, to really look at numbers and say, okay, this is a good defensive team. This is a bad defensive team. Good offensive team. Bad def- bad offensive team. Um, and or just a good team or bad team in general. Um, you know, several years ago, I did some 
research basically looked at playoff positions after 20 games and then compared that to um, into the year. And basically, on average, it was about seven of eight teams that were in playoff position after 28, 20 games were um, the ones that went into the playoffs at the end of the season. So um, it's, it's, that sounds crazy because you think about it like we've had, you know, close races for seven, eight seeds at the end of the season, um, you know, almost every year. Um, but that's just the way it is. I think it's just, you know, the, the, I think, and we've, there's been research that like, you know, early season numbers are more, um, uh, they correlate more with playoff success than late season numbers. Like, Oh, if a team really came on after the all-star break, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, they're the better team in the playoff come playoff time. It's, it's uh, about what you've done all season long, and and the first twenty games can tell you as much as any other uh, any other portion of the season. I remember that tweet you sent out. Uh, last, I think well, I saw. I remember one specifically last year. Maybe somebody building up, and maybe it was yourself on that. That, and I was kind of stunned by it, and I almost wondered, like, wow, I wonder how far you can back that up. Like, is it actually fifteen games? It makes some sense, though, in the sense that you know it's a quarter of the season. And so you're not going to have a huge outlier. You're not going to have huge outliers by the time you have a quarter of the season in the books. So it makes it yeah, makes I mean, a little what, bit of sense. Yeah, I mean, at this point, like ten games in, you're going to have schedule outliers. You know, you're going to have a team that's been home for eight of the ten, or um, a team that's been on the road for seven of the ten, um, a team that's played seven really good teams versus three uh, mediocre teams and no really bad teams. You know. Um, so once you get to 20, then there's a little bit of schedule balance. Um, and, and, and as far as back to backs and that concern and that as well. So, um, I think, yeah, I think you definitely need to get there to that point. Although, you know, I think even now you can look at certain things and, and, and especially if they're consistent with a, a way the team was the, the year before, um, and say that, you know, this is who they are or, or this this looks like who they who, who what kind of a team this is, um, you know, and certain things you look at is like, wow, a Frank Vogel team's just getting killed on defense. You know, like that seems that seems crazy. Like that's a team. Right, let's let this team settle in before we draw any grand conclusions about that about this one. You know, that there, there's certain certain things you you know, and it's based on, you know, prior knowledge about, you know, personnel and coaching and um and things where you can look at a five game sample and say nah let's let's wait some time on this or you know what they look they you know the spurs they look like a, a pretty good they have a pretty good bench again you know like that you can draw certain conclusions like that yeah one thing that's going to be very interesting this year is we have these new coaches who are i would say defensive minded or at least with good defensive reputations frank vogel tom Thibodeau, dave yeager dave yeager might quibble about being defensive minded but um and they've all gone to terrible defensive teams and so I, it's going to be really interesting to me to see what the influence of a coach is and how maybe how long does it take the influence of a coach to have on a defense yeah i mean at the one example i i see where it's like wow this coach took them from you know terrible to really good um was steve clifford in charlotte um, you know, that team was awful defensively and he came, came and, and turned them into a top defense, top 10 defensive team before they really caught on offensively. Um, and so like, 
you know, you and you look at that roster, it wasn't exactly a defensive roster, really. And so there's definitely examples of a coach. Even Dwayne Casey, his first year in Toronto, really turned them around defensively. Um, and so there are examples of coaches that have made a big impact um, on that end of the floor. Thibodeau, you know, actually joined the top 10 defensive team. The Bulls were a top 10 defensive team before his first coach, his first year there, um, but then just turned them into the best defense in the league that first year. It, it's, it is a fascinating one to watch uh, on, on how that plays because I, I think so many of – like I projected both Orlando and Minnesota this year to make the playoffs – Really based on just a belief of their coaching staff. I believe in Frank Vogel, and I believe in Tom Thibodeau. Even though those teams are young and they have flaws, I figure I actually have them as my two eights. But I know Orlando seems absurd right now. But uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold for a minute or two. I'll wait till at least the twenty game mark, right, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. But I mean, I'm I was with you there on Minnesota, just because I think the talent is there. Where yes, if he gives them a good. He, he makes them a, a, a above-average defensive team um, from where they were last year, which was bottom five. Um, they have the offensive talent, I think, that can get by even if they focus, even if he were to take, you know, spend 80% of training camp on defense. Um, they have the offensive talent to get by on that end. Orlando, I'm not so sure about in that regard. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a big fan of Alfred Payton at point guard. I like Fournier a lot, but um, the pieces there don't fit necessarily, don't, um, in my mind, don't fit as well offensively as the pieces that Minnesota has. So if Bogle, you know, really focused on defense and got them into, to turn them into a a good defensive team, I don't know that, um, I don't know how good they would be offensively at, at, at that point. You know what? My pick on that was as much as not liking a bunch of other Eastern Conference teams. That's true. I mean, it's I don't know what to make of of you know that group yet. You know, I think um, I think Detroit has looked good early on. That they can get that they're three and one without Reggie Jackson is is a, a great sign for them. Although their schedule gets tougher um, later this month. Um, and yeah, I, I, I you know I don't know what to make a lot of, of a lot of these teams. You know, Charlotte. You know, it was a really good team, and it seems like a safe, uh, a safe bet. But they 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 did lose some key pieces at uh, this summer. So, um, you know, it's 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 definitely a, a a big jumble from probably from four to four to eleven or twelve in that conference. So when I do my prep, I I because I'm have my brain, um, which is not a that's not a good thing. I have to write down the order by which everything takes place in every day to make sure I get everything done. And there it is, number seven on the list, John Schumann's One Team, One Stat. It is a staple for all preparation that I do for any play-by-play game. After I get the game day sheet and write the open and do a few other things, one day, team, one stat, don't tell we don't want to tell Kevin Pelton whether it's in front or behind ESPN Insider Reports by Kevin Pelton. We will, we will not share that fact. But, so this is really, I think it's one of the great things that's done in the preseason. John, is your NBA.com, one team, one stat. What, let, let, just big picture, this may be an impossible question. What are some of the things that jumped out? What are the ones that what, and you saw, found a note or uh, it's like, I'm going to really watch this in the opening. Let's go with it. 20 games of the season are some of the numbers that you saw that you found that, that kind of intrigued you the most. 
Well, one of the, the more fascinating ones for me was Detroit and their shot location defense. So they were number one in the league in forcing sh- in, or I guess, yeah, forcing shots between the restricted area and the three-point line. So the restricted area is the most valuable area as far as shot uh, value, right? And then three-pointers are are next. Corner threes are better than above-the-break threes. But the best shots are either layups and dunks or threes. Um, And Detroit was number one in the league in in the percentage of their opponent's shots that came between those two areas. So they had the best say shot location defense um but they ranked i want to say 13th or so in effective field goal percentage defense um and 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 mediocre they're basically mediocre in in defensive efficiency overall and i thought that was fascinating it's like you know you should you would think that forcing the right kind of shots is going to lead to a top 10 defense if you're number one in, in in sort of shot location defense you should be a top 10 defensive team um, so I thought that was kind of fascinating. And the great thing was that they were in Brooklyn in the preseason. So I was able to actually talk to Stan Van Gundy about this and sort of figure out or just ask him, you know, what's the disconnect between forcing the right kinds of shots, um, but the other team still, you know, the opponents still shooting well. Um, and he said it's just about, you know, contesting and, and, and they can prevent layups, but they don't, they're not contesting. And he says, you know, uh, an uncontested mid-range shot is is still a good shot in his mind. Um, and so that is something I want to keep an eye on is, is do they still have the, a, a great shot location defense? Um, are they still preventing the shots? And then are they contesting them better this year? And, and can they make that step into uh, becoming a top 10 defensive team? So many things to build off there, John. But let me let me start with just I'm going to share a story with you that kind of relates to it a little bit. So in Quinn Snyder's first year with the Jazz, if you recall, they had that they traded Ennis Cantor and the defense exploded and everybody went with that was the reason. And I I actually go back to that year and there were some trends that were happening a little bit before that. And one of the things was early in the year, I kept saying to Quinn, you're forcing all the right shots. You're just, you're, you're playing the defensive system correctly. It's just as though you're playing it passively, right? So in other words, Mm -hmm. what I keep, probably exact same concept, and I keep something called expected, uh, expected points per shot compared to actual points per shot allowed. And look at that. And so it's, that's kind of, I have it as an impact defensive rating. And the Jazz were one of the lowest teams in the league in what I call impact defense. In other words, how were they impacting the shots that the other team was getting, but they were forcing the right shots. I, I think there's, you know, there's two as so there's really two aspects of defense here. One is, are you getting the shots, which is so important to keep people off certain spots? And two, are you having an impact of it? Right. I think Portland was another team like that. I remember talking to Terry, Terry Stotts and he's like, yeah, we're, we're trying to model our defense after Indiana, you know, drop back on pick and rolls, prevent layups, um, force shots in between. And they did that. They had a, a, they were really good at forcing shots in between, but then, but you know, they they had the low, you know, their opponents had the highest field goal percentage from mid range. And so they didn't have a great defense because they forced the right shots, but those shots went in, you know? And, and so that was another team that sort of, had to deal with that. Um, obviously, they changed personnel quite a bit since then, but I remember that was another another team that sort of had that disconnect as well. Because on that level, what was so interesting about last season 
was the Spurs who kind of went completely away from analytical offense still maintained analytical defense. They allowed the they had the best uh, they only allowed 55% of what I think I would call good shots. You know, they only allowed 55% of shots, either three or the restricted area. And their expected point per shot, I believe, was best in the NBA. Yet on the flip side, so much talk was, oh, my gosh, they're re-embracing the mid-range and they're doing all these things on the on the other aspect, which was that they almost they kind of abandoned some of the offensive analytics. Yeah, and I think I think offense, you got to go more with your personnel. Um, and that's a team, you know, they realized they had LaMarcus Aldridge. They're not good. They were not good. They, they did cut down on his mid-range shots. You know, if you compare how, how often he shot from mid-range in Portland to how often he did in San Antonio last year, he, he did reduce them um, a little bit or quite a bit. Um, but still, compared to that team's shot selection, he was still, you know, a high-volume um, mid-range shooter. And, you know, I think, you know, offensively, I think you've got to tailor your offense more to your personnel, whereas defensively you can, you know, you've got to, uh, if you're going to do this over 82 games, you know, you got to uh, force certain kinds of shots. You know, you then, you know, Stephen Curry comes along and he's going to, you know, ruin your game plan in that regard. But um, over the course of the season, you can try to uh, force those shots um, consistently. What what other moves or things that popped out where you said, oh, wow, Al Horford and Boston's really going to work? Or were there anything – what else were the things that you saw that you said, oh, wait, we're, we're really on to something here? Yeah, the one thing I liked about Boston is – is um, and it's one thing that sport the, the sport view technology has sort of taught me over the last couple of years is the value of shots early in the clock versus late in the clock and how uh, field goal percentage and effective field goal percentage basically goes down each segment of the shot clock. So it's highest in the first six seconds, um, then drops a little, you know, in between 18 or between, you know, 12 and 18, and then drops again between six and 12. And then is is its lowest between zero and six. Um, And so Boston, you know, sort of, um, they weren't a great offensive team, but they got early shots and, um, you know, they were the team that had the lowest percentage of their shots in the last six seconds of the shot clock. So they avoided late, late clock situations, uh, the best. And the other thing that was interesting is that they're also, uh, top 10 in regards to passes per possession. So not only do they have short possessions, but they also rank high in ball movement, which tells you, um, you know, that they move the ball quickly. Um, like as opposed to the Jazz, who you know ranked last in in pat or, or ranked at the top of the league in, in passes per possession, and part of that is you know part of that is is they pass the ball three or four times at the at the at part of the at the you know at the very beginning of each possession, but part of it is also the length of the possession. You have a longer possession, you're going to pass the ball a little bit more. Um, and so Boston, with quick possessions and lots of ball movement. Um, was a good match for Horford because he came from Atlanta where they had quick possessions and lots of ball movement. Those were two of the three teams that sort of ranked in the top 10 as far as shortest possessions and most passes per possession, the other one being Golden State. So I thought that was a a really good fit, and I think it will be, and I I think, you know, eventually they should be the second-best team in the Eastern Conference, in my my opinion. Um, You know, some of the other things that stood out, I think the Tim, Tim Duncan's, history of great defense in San Antonio is just amazing. Um, you know, he was there for 19 seasons and in 15 of those 19, um, they had a top five defense. 
which is just amazing. There's uh, a handful of franchises that in those 19 years did not have a top five defense ever. Um, the most any other team had was seven years of top five defense in those 19 seasons, and the Spurs had it 15 times. And that, you know, uh, I've always been a huge Tim Duncan fan just in regard to the impact he's made on both ends of the floor. And so it was good to sort of put a little wrap on his career with that sort of uh, statistical nugget. Yeah, he, he's incredible. You know, Jazz beat San Antonio last night. I'm not, I'm not in love with the Spurs like everybody else. I know that I'm going to make a fool of myself every time I say this on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, it's moreover that I, it's moreover actually. The, what what the issue with San Antonio for me is is, and I get burnt. You get burned on this all the time because there's some level of institutional brilliance. And I just never buy into that, and I'm so I end up being wrong on it because I just try to, you know, if you look at it analytically, you look at some things. There's just things I don't love about that team, and so you're missing the institutional brilliance that they have, uh, and and that's why I end up, you know, looking foolish at the end of the process when I make these comments. But and last night didn't help me any because they didn't look very good last night against the Jazz were brilliant, but they didn't look as, you know, they Kawhi and Lamarcus were great last night and they got no help. So I'm still curious on. I don't know. I'm curious on where San Antonio is with Tim Duncan. I think he's just ever so important, and I think Tony and Manu are really old. Yeah, it's true. The one thing, I mean, I didn't watch that game last night. I was I was at uh, Philadelphia, Orlando, and, and watched a little bit of another game when I got back. But um, the one thing I noticed is that Jazz just really shot really well from outside the paint. Like, I think, you know, they scored 106 and maybe had 35 points in the paint. Um, I was looking at their shooting. They shot better than 50% from outside the paint. So um, I'd have to look and see, you know, was that them just getting hot or, or you know, was the defense just not, not good enough to, uh, to contest those shots? You know, it's so uh, – and Pelton did a great piece on this last year uh, with it just being a – that it's a make-or-miss league. Right? I mean, yeah. you can just uh, – you go to – NBA.com and go to the uh, advanced stat box score and just tell me who made their uncontested shots on the night. And you, I, I would love to know just on the simplest form, the team that makes their uncontested shot, the higher rate of uncontested shots, almost even regardless of how many were taken, who wins more? I, I feel like that has just become the number one indicator of who's going to win a game and who's not. Right. And it's just the value of shooting is so, I mean, it's so high and, it's the one reason why, like, after Chris Middleton went got hurt and there were still some people thinking Milwaukee had a chance to make the playoffs, and I, I looked at that and I said, how could – I mean, they have no shooting, and I've watched them a couple of times, and I feel like it's just uh, Antetokounmpo and, and Jabari Parker just going back and forth, just trying to force their way into the paint. And, and you can't – you know, you just can't – sustain an offense that way you just you absolutely need guys who can shoot the ball um and so you know that you can just look at teams just look up and down and realize that like you know if you have shooters you're you, you can you can score if you don't you, you know you're gonna have a tough time um you know there are teams here that there are teams now that are just going to shoot no matter what whether they have good shooters or not and those are interesting you know, Brooklyn's an example of that, you know, and they're just going to they're just going to have good quarters and they're going to have bad quarters. And the good, the good quarters might look nice, but the bad quarters are going to be really ugly because they just they just shoot and shoot and they don't necessarily have um, the personnel to, to sustain, you know, good shooting over 
over 48 minutes, let alone, you know, a full season. Uh, look, it's still staying kind of preview mode, even though we have four or five games of sample size. In other words, none. Uh, when you look, when you did your work, were there, what were teams that you said, oh, they're better than people realize? My, 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 oh. Well, I mean, Utah is definitely number one at the top of the list just because, um, you know, they had a point differential of a 47 win team last year and they won 40. Um, you know, and, and basically kept their core together and then added to it. And I thought, and, and adding to it, I thought they made a huge upgrade at, at point guard. Um, so that's, that, that's the first thing I look at is, is teams that weren't as good as their point differential or, or, or were much better, or their point differential was much better than their record set. Um, and the Jazz were one, and they just were really bad in close games down the stretch and, um, you know, were a better team than their record said they were. And because, you know, they had continuity, um, I thought this is the team that people don't realize how good they, they are and, and how good they can be if they just straighten out their sort of late-game issues and, and um, obviously have a better point guard, which they do. That I've heard that a lot, I, John. I uh, maybe I'm just being an anti-homer. So, like, where's the element where okay, I got it. Jazz point differentials, but they just didn't win games. Like the essence of who you are is if, whether you win the game or not, right? Not whether your point differential is is good. I, I hear this all the time. Is oh, we should really evaluate the Jazz as a 45 win team. When you hear it with a lot of other teams, do you really buy this point differential as as that good an indicator to the upcoming seasons? Um, I think you have to you have to take it with some context. But yeah, I I, I do trust. Well, as far as going into a next season, it depends. I mean, like I said, I think the the continuity is a key factor there. Where it's like, yeah, they're bringing back the same team that had a point differential of a 47 win team. So I think that's, that's a positive, um, you know, for the most part, I think Trevor Booker was maybe the, the player that played the most minutes that has gone. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do buy it. I think it's a truer indicator. I think if you have been winning games, five, it's better than losing games. The one thing with them is, you know, the, the fascinating thing about it was that their defense was the bigger issue when you look at their late game numbers, you know, and, and how they performed in games that were close at the end. And um, and so I think that, you know, requires some sort of film study as far as like, well, what was going on defense that, that they were so poor defensively, even with Gobert on the floor um, in close games late, you know, and, and I think that is something I'm sure – they looked at, and I'm sure that they feel like they have to improve upon um, this season. Like, why were they not getting stops in so many close games? And uh, I think, so, yeah, I do believe in the point differential thing, but I also feel like, yeah, there are real problems there as far as um, late-game execution, and those things have to be addressed. One of my favorite things is what base with baseball numbers is how they 
basically on pitchers, right? That it's they almost went to this idea that it's luck whether or not a ball drops in. It can be a line drive to third or a Texas leaguer that drops in, and and they're able to almost do a predictive analysis that a guy got unlucky on a given year. Have we found anything of that sort in the NBA yet? Is there anything out there that you're saying? You know what? This is actually um, somewhat. I don't know. Yeah, just I'll leave it at that. Is there there anything out there in that same sort where we can say, you know what, a player kind of was unnaturally poor in this area or something which is an indicator that someone's going to be better the next year? Well, I think opponent shooting probably would be the one thing to look at is is now that we have contested versus uncontested and you can um, look at, say, you know, uh, this year, you know, or last, last year, you know, Team X's opponents shot, a certain percent on uncontested jumpers, which is a little bit of an outlier or an anomaly. And and you could maybe guess that that number is going to go down, even if they don't change anything the following year that, that, you know, their opponents just shot really well on uncontested jumpers. Now over 82 games is that's going to balance itself out. You would think, but maybe from year to year it drops. Well, the the first thing you could look at is free throw percentage on from opponents. Like it, 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 it varies kind of, uh, it, it varies more than you would expect if you just look at opponent free throw percentage uh, from year to year. So I think that's something that, yeah, you know, if you look at it, maybe it's a, it might be the difference of a point or two per game just because one team's opponents happen to shoot better on free throws than another team's. Um, but I think, yeah, opponent shooting numbers are one that there's some luck involved. And, you know, like – um, you know, and from game to game, obviously, you know, they just made shots and, and I thought we defended well, but they just made shots. And if, if I think there's still going to be some uh, variability with those numbers uh, over the course of a season. And so maybe if uh, a team had a high opponent three point percentage on uncontested looks versus another team and, and they contested a good percentage of them, um, that can, be a number that can be expected to go down uh, the following year. Is there uh, a trend? Is offense or defense ahead early? Usually. Um, usually offensive efficiency is lowest at the start of the season and goes, goes up as the season goes on. Um, and so if you try to compare, Oh, let, if let's look at, you know, in fact, Right now on on Wednesday, uh, the league is scoring 100 has scored 102.5 points per 100 possessions. Last season for the full season, it scored 103.9. I wouldn't say look at those two numbers and say, wow, offense is down this year because it's only, you know, uh, eight days. And uh, as I said, offense goes up Uh, even after a month. I wouldn't compare those two numbers. I would maybe compare the first month of this season versus the last month or versus the first month of last season. Um, and, and, and look at it that way. So I, I, right now it's too early to say, I think, um, but you can compare early season numbers versus early season numbers from previous years and see if there's a, a trend. And, um, like last year, like the pace increase was obvious from the very start of the season. Like after a week, there was a huge jump in pace and, and pace is something that doesn't necessarily uh, go up or down um, over the course of a season. And so last year, I remember comparing the pace jump uh, after a week and looking at it, uh, you know, after the first week from the previous season and saying like, this is a huge jump. And 
at the end of the year, 26 of the 30 teams played at a faster pace last year than they did the year before. So um, that was something that was pretty obvious from the very start. Well, John, I've got one for you to keep an eye on because I we have very small sample size, but I was playing around this morning. The only thing that's off right now is three-point shooting, and particularly corner three. The corner three, uh, I think, is down to 1.05 points per shot attempt right now compared to last year where it was uh, 1.12. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing. I know I, I did look at it after a few days, and it was really down. Like, corner threes were worse than above the break threes for the first few days of the season. I think they've they've ticked up above that uh, since then. But, um, you know, it's one key thing to keep an eye on. Um, and also, like, percentage of shots that come from the corner or how, how, how our defense is doing in regard to preventing corner threes and, and, and seeing, um, you know, what teams are able to prevent them, what teams are able to still get them uh, right in, you know, this year when, you know, it's been a few years now that people understand the uh, the value of them, and and we see less teams sort of helping off strong side corner um, on pick and roll coverages, and and you know some teams, you know some guys still make that mistake, but um, it's a mistake that happens less and less every year. That's a good point. Last year, seven point three percent of all shots were corner threes. So far this year, six point eight percent which doesn't sound like a lot in the sense it's only 0.5, but that's a pretty small number. So that actually is – that's a pretty good little amount of movement right there. We'll see whether that holds. And then there's, you know, then there's what Houston's doing, where 78% of all of Houston shots this year are either in the restricted area or threes. Like, it's incredible. That, uh, it, yeah, it's it's incredible. And, and I don't think James Harden gets enough credit for that. I mean, the guy is um, – we all know that he gets to the basket and gets to the line, but I don't think people really fully grasp how good of a passer he is. And he and Le- and LeBron and John Wall are those guys that can take a pick and roll, drive one side, drive down one side of the lane, and just throw a dart to the opposite corner, um, you know, through traffic. And uh, I think Harden is, you know is just one of the be- one of the best at assisting on three pointers. You know, we know he takes threes, we know he gets to the basket, we know he gets to the free throw line. Um but the shots that he create are just as efficient as, you know, some of the shots that he takes. Is that the new iPhone? Yeah, got it on T Mobile. Fastest iPhone deserves America's fastest LTE network. Introducing the amazing iPhone 8. It's the best iPhone yet, now on America's best unlimited network. For a limited time, save up to $300 on the amazing iPhone 8 after 24 monthly bill credits. And now join T-Mobile's iPhone upgrade program for free. Eligible trade-in and finance agreement required. If you cancel service, you may lose promo credits. Contact us for details. Video at 480p. Small fraction of users over 50 gigs per month may have reduced speed. See store for details. The the next one is the speed, and it's going to be so incrementally different that it's like... So it's hard to probably figure out what it means. The speed by which the ball gets there. That's, to me, what the difference is on some of these guys, is on how the speed by which Harden and particularly LeBron is able to get the ball to uh, to the shooter. And it just, you know, it sounds so minor, but it makes such a big difference. Yeah, LeBron is just uh, in, a, in a world by himself in that regard, just in, in the ability to throw a 30 foot pass at, you know, without much arc on it, just like a line drive, you know, pass from, from one wing to the opposite corner without, you know, 
whether it's one hand, two hands, you know, whatever. He just throws, I, I call him darts. He throws darts across the court. Um, and it's, it makes him, you know, and with the shooting that they put around him, it's the ultimate pick your poison situation where he's going to attack. He can't shoot. I mean, his jumper is not as, as inconsistent as anybody in the league. Um, but he gets, he attacks. And then if you put any attention on him, he finds the open guy and they have so many good shooters. People don't realize how, um, good of an addition Dunleavy was in that regard. One of the best shooters of the last five or six years. Um, and so they just have so many guys around him that can shoot that it's like I said, it's the ultimate pick your poison situation. I think you led me into this one uh, last night on, you know, a statistical run for ra- through rabbit holes uh, with Wesley Matthews was the player that had the second, I believe uh, most amount of open threes in the league last year. Uh, it was interesting also, Ryan Anderson, who claimed he got no open looks uh, in New Orleans, was right on top of that list. Uh, what was also interesting was the amount of players who had were on the top of the list of open three shooters who switched teams this last year. Hmm. Um, C.J. McCollum's the best in the league, 55% on an open three. Uh, this is of guys who took at least 100. That's an incredible number. But Ilya Sova, who got traded again yesterday, was number two. Jared Dudley was number seven. Jeff Teague was number nine. Ryan Anderson was 11. Eric Gordon was 12. Uh, Toledovich was 16. It's going to be curious to me to see – those guys and whether, uh, particularly Jeff Teague, Jeff Teague shot 47% last year on open threes. 17% of his shots were open threes. And I wonder whether or not he gets that number again in a, in a different system with different players. It's fascinating. And it'll be fascinating even for the guys that stayed on teams if, if that's a sustainable number. Because, you know, 200 shots isn't a ton. Um, and so, you know, does is that – is how much randomness is in that number, you know, and, and, and how do they sustain it? You know, Del Vadova is another one I think is curious just because he's, he was really good on catch and shoot threes up near 50%, but he was playing with LeBron. Right. And so how much of that is, is LeBron. And I think he's a good compliment uh, to answer the Kumpo in, in, in Milwaukee, just because he is a, a sort of a point guard by, by name, but can play off the ball in that regard as a catch and shoot guy um, and, and they put the ball in Giannis's hands. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see over the course of the year, how well he shoots on, on catch and shoot now that he's not in Cleveland, you know, how much of a, a factor is, is LeBron in that, in that number. And then some of the other guys who had the, uh, there's a few guys that, you know, you're going to have to create the all Jerry Sloan team. You know, what Jerry Sloan used to say, son, there might be a reason you're open. <laughs> And there's a few guys out there that got a lot of open looks. And you know, look at some of the numbers. Matt Barnes, there might have been a reason why they left you wide open last year when you hit 29% of your open threes. And, frankly, Russell Westbrook, there's a reason why they're leaving you wide open from three at your 31% on your wide open threes. Yeah, well, I mean, some of those guys, well, Memphis, they were on a team, you know, Barnes, if he was in, when he was in Memphis, was on a team that just needed him to shoot. You know, they needed somebody who at least could at least shoot the ball. Whether it goes in, you know, 29%, no, that's not good. Um, but there has to be some sort of a 
threat out there on some of these teams depends you know if he's on if he's on golden state no we say no you don't you're not shooting those shots but if you're on a team that just is desperate for floor spacing um you know there's something in the volume you know like there's there's i think one thing we've learned over the years i think is that three point accuracy is great but three point volume is also important and the ability to just uh shoot because even if 33% isn't great uh isn't great but it's still you know a point per shot so um and three is greater than two so if you can if you can shoot at a at a average from average mark from three it's 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 better than than a lot of other shots have you figured out the value of a contest you know the the i think the sport view numbers are a little sort of nebulous as far as contested versus uncontested i I don't you know there is a you know there is a difference and it's pretty big but and so like it's it's a great question because you know, there's been other studies that say, oh, sport views contest versus uncontest isn't very good because if you look at the numbers, the, the percentage of shots that are contested are, are, are pretty low um, for sport view. But if you just look at contested versus uncontested field goal percentage, there's obviously a difference. So there's some value in, 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 in their numbers of contested versus uncontested. Um, I, you know, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I think it's like 5 or 6% or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, there's value in it. And, um, the question is, you know, how close or how accurate, how precise is player tracking in, in, in determining what is a contested shot versus, uh, an uncontested shot. What about, um, catch and shoot versus off the bounce? Oh, that's, I mean, that's huge. I mean, um, let's see if I have it. I don't have it off the top of my head, but um, basically everybody shoots better off on catch and shoot. There's only like two or three players that don't that shot better on um, off the bounce, uh, off the dribble jumpers versus catch and shoot jumpers. And they're just, you know, uh, I think Eric Gordon was one, and I, I think Marcus Smart was another. And Marcus Smart is just a terrible shooter overall, so um, you can't put too much into that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely worth a few percentage points. It's like uh, it's you know a catch and shoot is huge. There's one thing uh, Sportview also can tell us, and it's something I had them help me with last year, was the difference between a three pointer that was taken off that was uh, taken after a paint touch versus a three pointer that wasn't. So basically, they looked at three pointers that were shot within, I want to say. Uh, three seconds and two passes of a, of the ball going, getting into the paint versus otherwise. And so basically it was like the difference between a corner three and an above the break three. So, um, you know, you sh- teams shot better on a three pointer after the ball touched the paint than otherwise then. And then if the ball was just sort of passed around the perimeter. And I think that sort of reinforces still the value of protecting the paint um, you know, as much as, as we've learned about the value of a three and three point shots are great, you know, better than, than long twos. Um, you know, we still know that layups are still the most valuable shot on the floor and that three pointers off of paint touches are better than three pointers when the ball hasn't touched the paint yet. So there's still a value in getting into the paint, getting to the basket, getting to the free throw line, and then creating jump shots off of 
penetration versus just passing the ball around the perimeter and, sh- and just launching threes. Interesting stuff. Final part with John Schumann. Uh, there's all the new hustle stats that are out. So I now know that Rudy Gobert leads the NBA in screen assists with seven per game. I have no idea what this means. Well, I do, but I mean what it really means. Uh, big matchup tonight of uh, screen assisters, Gobert and Bogut going head-to-head. Um, I know that uh, John Wall leads the NBA in loose ball recovery. 2.5 per game, and the Minnesota might miss Ricky Rubio's 2.0 a game, and that uh, Wesley Matthews and T.J. Warren lead the league in deflections. What's your thoughts on the value of all these and what we're going to really learn from all this? I'm going to need some time. You know, we just started uh, posting those in the playoffs last year, um, so you can get the playoff numbers from last year and then just, you know, the first four or five games this year. Um, so I think it's going to take some time before you really understand <laughs> Um, the value of them and, and, and who's good at what, you know, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I definitely want to get at least 20 games into the season before I start, you know, citing those in any kind of article that I'm, I'm using. Although the screen assist thing is, 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 is really interesting. I think maybe you can look at a few games of that and start to understand, um, not only, you know, I think it's also will tell you a little bit about style of play from team to team and teams that have high screen assist guys and, and you know, what that means. But um, that's one thing I've, I'm trying to keep an eye on again this year or maybe for the first time this year is really understanding who sets good screens and who doesn't. And I think the value of setting a good screen isn't talked about enough and um, – I'm starting to understand it. I realize I'll, I'll look at a player and, and realize that he set a weak screen and, and realize like, or, you know, you'll see a play and say, well, why didn't that pick and roll go anywhere? Like why was, you know, um, why did nothing happen on that pick and roll? They got no sort of advantage out of it. And then you look back and you look at the screen and say, well, the guy didn't really make any contact. Now I know there's some screens where you're not supposed to, you're trying to slip or, or, um, you know, flare out or something like that. But I think uh, the value of a good screen and also the value of a guy who can um, fight through a screen is huge too. That's one thing I noticed in last year's playoffs was watching Paul George and watching Paul George fight through a screen when he's guarding the ball. Another guy who's really good at it is and uses a di- totally different technique is Corey Joseph. Um, and so Paul George will do sort of like a snake move where he snakes past the screener and Corey Joseph sort of tags along the guys, the, the, the ball handler you know, sort of trails him and, but then squeezes and then gets back in front. Um, so that's another thing I, I like to just keep an eye on um, when I'm watching games is who sets good screens and who gets through screens really well. Um, there are certain guys that just get flattened off uh, far too, too often on, on, on pick and rolls. You know, just the quick thing that jumps out to me, and I agree with you completely, John, that there's just not enough sample size to do anything with it, but – so I'm looking at the deflections and the loose ball recovered. And here's Ricky Rubio, who's fifth in the league in deflections and third in the league in loose ball recoveries. And all we ever want to talk about is he can't shoot, and yet his team's always better when he's on the floor. And maybe this is going to be one of those things that leads us to begin to understand why his team is always better 
when he's on the floor. You know, another one just that I know well is that somehow uh, last year the Jazz with Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors on the floor were fine offensively. It defies everything that we've been told, right? They played slow. They had no floor spacing. There's no way that group should have been good. Well, maybe if maybe if Rudy Gobert's got seven screen assists a game, that screening is actually as valuable as some other aspects of things uh, in regards to the spacing. It may, those are the two quick thoughts I had just when I scanned this today. Oh, two very good points. You know, the Rubio effect was was always larger on the defensive end in previous years, where you'd see, you know, how the how the Wolves performed with him on and off the floor uh, defensively. Um, last year, we just saw it offensively as well. You know, like those young guys performed um, so much better um, when he was on the floor, uh, and that was well circle back to the one team, one stat. That was one of sort of the more fun ones to do also was Zach Levine shooting when Rubio was on and off the floor. Basically when he was, when Rubio was on the floor, Zach Levine had the, the, the numbers of the third best shooting guard in the league. Um, and he was off the floor. He was a below average shooter when Rubio was off the floor. Levine was a below average shooter. So, so that's the Rubio effect is huge. And yeah, maybe those, those hustle stats will, 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 teach us some more you know we're always learning and and um that's a great point about the jazz offense and and how valuable uh those screens can be and how valuable um you know to how you can succeed with two bigs on the floor that don't necessarily space the floor john really appreciate your work thanks so much it's fun stuff keep up the great work appreciate one team one stat it's probably the most referenced item i have in all my prep all year long (laughs) so appreciate that very much and thanks so much for taking the time on locked on nba today anytime david stay tuned we'll we'll try to do those uh one team one stat type things uh throughout the season oh sounds great that is john schumann you can follow him on that twitter thing we have at john schumann you can read him at nba.com enjoy your day thanks so much for tuning in to locked on nba part of the locked on podcast network make sure you subscribe to your team's daily podcast who's your favorite nba or nfl team because their podcast is out there as well for you it's the locked on podcast network your team every day